Hello! Welcome to Spilling Chai on the Pain Gap. I'm your host, Anusha Hussain, and today's guest is none other than Laura Coates, the author of Just Pursuit. To be honest, prior to this book, I only knew about Laura as one of the most amazing and brilliant legal minds of our day. But after reading this book, I now know that she's also one of the best storytellers and writers I have come across. I'm so excited to speak with her today about her book, my book, Giving Birth in America as a Black Woman, Pursuing Justice in America as a Black Woman, and so much more. I'm gonna quickly read you her bio in case you already don't know how fabulous she is. Laura Coates is a CNN senior legal analyst, Sirius XM host, and has served as adjunct professor at the George Washington University Law School. A former federal prosecutor, Coates served as assistant United States attorney for the District of Columbia and as a trial attorney in the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice, specializing in the enforcement of voting rights throughout the United States. She lives outside of Washington, D.C. with her husband and two children, and she is my guest today on Spilling Chai. Enjoy. Thank you so much. So I want to get right to it. First of all, um, I loved this book so much. I have to be honest that I haven't finished it, but I also have to be honest about you know, I usually, you know, you have a way of just like reading books and going, I could not put this book down. I could not put this book down. It is written so well. And I want to ask you my first question, which is how did you decide on the structure of this book? Because I love how, you know, it's stories and stories and kind of like on parenthood, on this. And then you explain, you know, I just, here, I'm going to give my viewers a little example because I love how you did it. It was so original. And then I just felt like you really emphasize your stories. Like here, please don't come home on what happens when a black woman must aid in a deportation case. Want to see something funny on being trained. So it's almost like you structured it stories and lessons. Yeah. You know, it's so funny because, and thank you for saying such nice things about it, Anisha. I really appreciate it. And it's funny because I think so many people would assume the kind of book they think I would write, right? You think maybe it's very law school textbook. It'd be, oh, here's a Supreme Court case. And then let's unpack and deconstruct the history of America around it. And those certainly have its place. And I, I do enjoy reading those as well. The, the law school nerd within, and is it a place for that? But I just felt like it was really better to write it as a narrative memoir, personifying the issues that we talk about all the time, about criminal justice reform and the need to do so through the stories of people who are most impacted by the justice system. And I wrote it in an episodic way where each chapter stands on its own, where you can pick it up and put it back down, reflect on what you've been reading, finding yourself in those scenarios and thinking about the choices you would make. And, you know, I, in my professional career, I don't suffer any fools. And I did not, you know, um, leave myself out of judgment. You know, I didn't write it as sort of a heroine because it wouldn't be the whole truth of the story. It would be, you know, my lens and perspective and what I hope you get out of the justice system and your perception. I wanted you to know the truth because frankly, when we talk about the importance of speaking truth to power, you first have to know what it is. When you ask for justice, Here's what it looks like in practice. We talk about a system. Here's what the ecosystem of justice looks like and the stories that are being told through the people who I think so often 
are marginalized even in the pursuit of justice. And I, I wanted to tell their stories from a fly on the wall and sometimes the seat at the table and sometimes the person on the hot seat. Well, you did uh, such a powerful and incredible job. And I felt like there were so many lessons. I was, I was writing ferociously and kind of writing <laughs> things down. And you said something on page 24. It's oh my God, I love you right now. <laughs> 24, paragraph two, line six. Yes, I, I am, come on, I'm, I was an English major. I love this stuff. And I really want to tell everyone, I don't, I mean, I really mean it. It is written so well. There are lessons in it. There are, I mean, it, it is such a powerful book and I haven't even, I haven't even gotten to the end yet. But I love that when you say, I opened it to page 26, when the quote is on page 24. Um, I knew that complaining to him would be an exercise in futility and you kind of go on, but this line, people must be taught how to treat you and those lessons are transferable. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, that is so true and so wise, but I wanted to talk to you about anger and emotion as a woman of color, but especially mm -hmm. as a black woman, as you know, in America, it's not something that we are allowed to express. How do you teach people how to treat you without losing your cool? Like, I actually want your tips. Well, you know what? I mean, well, it's funny because I'm, I, I, my general philosophy is I don't delegate my joy and I would never hand you a way to harm me. And I feel like we give so many people power over us with the words they use and everything, the perceived slights and the actual ones can feel so biting when, you when you're when you bombarded with you know death by a thousand cuts and, and people just messing with you. And I certainly feel that in my in daily life and, and far too often, but I also would never want to allow somebody else's perception or their intent to harm me to really control my own emotions. And so I do feel a range of emotions. I feel anger, I feel anxiety, I feel sadness, I feel insecurity, I feel powerful. Um, but I, I don't, but those are the things that are coming from me, not ones that I'm allowing you to project onto me. And so it's a deliberate and intentional really state of being that I have to work on and continue to work on. And that if somebody would like to um, impose their viewpoint and be dismissive of you, or to disregard you or sort of condescend and pat you on the head and you have no idea what you're talking about sort of mansplaining and womansplaining at times it happens as well i fight against that by you know i allow them to speak because it's important for me to um, not allow you to harp on an emotional response i want to hear what you have to say and then i will completely uh, demolish it but I want you to first have a chance to speak so I understand where you're really coming from about these yeah. issues. And my intention is not to sort of always do a gotcha or ever do a gotcha. But you have to train people that they can't get away with what they may have been accustomed to. I, I often joke around that line from Jay-Z, which is like, allow me to reintroduce myself. <laughs> my name is Ho. And so I feel yes. like, allow me to reintroduce myself. You know, you, you don't know who I am. Yes. I, I know who I am. So let me introduce myself, not through your image, but who I know I am. And that helps me to sort of um, rein in a knee-jerk reaction that won't serve me well in the future. Yes. Well, hallelujah and congratulations. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of a superpower because- I don't always do it right. <laughs> I just feel like it happens all the time. Like I can't imagine, I mean, being mansplained to, being condescended and you know, what have you as a woman of color with, I feel like it's an extra layer. It's like, 
everyday racism, but also everyday sexism. Mm -hmm. But I just wonder how you never, I just feel like just so much grace. There's so much grace that comes across in your stories. And I mean, I even think about like, uh, you know, being that, that man who was, what was his name? Holden, right? It was mm -hmm. Holden who was like teaching you how to interrogate. And you said that is someone's son. You know, how you were thinking that I just, I just felt like, I don't know, I wanted to punch Holden. I really wanted to tell him off uh, for you, but you, you can't, you know, it will end up costing you more, I guess. Well, the, cha you know, the chapter you're talking about is a chapter where a white male colleague of mine thought that it would be funny to teach me how to interrogate a, uh, a defendant by taking me to a basement room where a young black man was chained to a seat and thinking in that moment that I would, um, really not commiserate with the person who was chained, but I would try to emulate the person who thought it was funny that somebody was in this position and would try to do these different tactics to show one's power. And I, it, it, what, what oftentimes I go through in the book and in my own life and thinking about is how oftentimes people assume that you were just like them. And it makes me stop and pause and say, what is the vibe I am giving to you? that you would think that I was on your side. What is the, what am I doing? And is, is the grace that you are, are you mistaking my grace right now or my composure for that I'm that for acquiescence that I'm going along with this? And so I often have to think about these moments when people assume camaraderie, where you are looking at this and saying, we couldn't be any more different. And then when you find yourself, however, thinking, you know, I'm different than this and you want to distinguish yourself. A lot of the book I talk about the idea of even in your pursuit to sort of distinguish yourself and stand with your own moral compass guiding you, that by ver your very presence sometimes can be complicit and you can inadvertently engage in the kind of behavior that you abhor. And you have to really take the time to really understand not only who you are, but continuously remind yourself of who you must be. And that's hard sometimes, right? And because there's times when you just want to be like, you, you know, you want to have sort of the casual approach to life that I just think is denied for so many of us. And um, and the rose-colored glasses that you just don't get to wear. And sometimes I guess you can be resentful about the fact that others get to wear them, but I, I'm glad I see the world as it is. And being a prosecutor helped me to do that, but I can't, I mean, I write in the book, there are moments that I wish I could go back to sort of a, a type of naivete, mm -hmm. even having been through law school, even having practiced law, there was, there's still a naivete about justice until you really see it from the inside. Wow. Oh my goodness. That is a quote. I wish I could wear the rose colored glasses. Amen. Well, something I really like about not like I, I respect and admire, and it really comes through in the book is you really respect and believe you know, in the concept of justice and what is right and what is wrong. And I grew up in Bangladesh kind of watching American legal dramas. <laughs> and so I, and I thought, wow, this is the gold standard uh, justice system in the world. Um, and it really wasn't shattered for me kind of until Donald Trump came in the picture. Hmm. And you are also, a CNN's uh, senior legal analyst. So you have to really, I mean, you have really seen this and analyzed this entire situation. Do you think that America, America's maybe even image of our justice system will ever recover from what Donald Trump did to it? Because I always believed that no one was above the law, not even the president. 
Mm. You know, I, I do, I mean, it's, it's interesting to think about how the world views America and also how America views itself. And I think it's very much in line that because we've got this paper that's the constitution, it's kind of like um, dating, right? You think to yourself, who is this person? Here's a person on paper, right? Then you meet him and you go, was I catfish? Like, first of all, I'm married. So I, not, I should not talk about a present day <laughs> reference of dating, but you know what I mean? The person who they are on paper versus who they are. You have people who of course will hang their diplomas and degrees on the wall and they'll tell you, this is who I am. And they interview and you go, man, well, tell me who you really are. Aside from the paper, show me who you really are. And I think America has in large respects been um, emulated and um, respected and criticized because there's a distinction at times of who we are on paper versus who we actually are in practice. And I think instances like you describe about the revelations that you experience through seeing the president Donald Trump actually I think is the kind of sort of shattering that you need to see to understand there is a difference between who we say we are and who we are acting like and who we need to be and we are really the way that I you know in the legal field and in medicine as you write about in your great book The Pain Gap which is phenomenal everyone and you all know because you're listening to it already um it's um, it's amazing you, you know, you talk about the idea of, look, it's the practice of medicine. It's the practice of law. It's the practice of democracy. And I think that we, and it's a practice of justice. I mean, it's not a destination. And I think when people realize that, um, they don't take for granted that there's still work to be done. Like you don't get to say, I mean, just look at the Voting Rights Act of 1965. You could say, okay, well, great. You got the Voting Rights Act of 1965. It's not the 1700s, but man, it's one that should stand the test of time. And you see it being chopped away little by little and sometimes in huge, tr huge chunks. And so we can't take for granted that that which was on paper will remain in practice or who we are trying to be on paper will ultimately be who we are. And I think that's part of why I think it's really important for people to understand what justice looks, feels, smells, tastes like. And look, maybe in the pursuit of justice, we could actually catch it one day. That needs to be on a t-shirt. That needs to be on a t-shirt with your book on it. That is so true. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it is a chase in a way we're chasing it. Um, thank you so much for bringing up my book because my next question leads to um, your experience um, because I feel like we've done interviews, but I've never gotten to ask you about your birth story, but I feel like we had some overlap because I know you had two C-sections too. Yes, yes, yes. So tell me about your birth story, if you don't mind sharing this, because uh, as you can tell, I love listening to women's stories. I just want to hold all of them. Uh, but what was it like, what was your experience like? giving you know, birth in America as a black woman. You know what, I am I'm very blessed and, and fortunate. I have two children, a seven-year-old daughter and a nine-year-old son. And um, I love them to pieces. They, I think they think that they're going, their cheeks are gonna fall off because I kiss them so often. Like they think they're, they're, their faces have literally permanent lipstick marks all over them. <laughs> and I know you're the same. And that's so why I, I love them so much. And I, I think back to, especially after my first child, um, the joy that I have with my daughter, who's the youngest, what might never have been had my birth story changed in a different way or gone one different direction. When I had my son, my, um, my oldest, um, you know, I was, I had the, I, I had to deliver on the due date. They thought there might be, they thought there might be some complications. And I write about in the book about 
perceptions of um, whether he may have had spina bifida and there were concerns about whether he did. He did not and he was born perfectly healthy and strong. But um, following his birth, I hemorrhaged and um, it was only by the grace of God and of course the grace of a very vigilant nurse who woke me up. And Anishay was, I mean, I tell this story all the time, but I mean, not all the time, but I think about it all the time. And that I woke up from, you know, obviously the C-section and it was normal after the, the day after and this nurse wakes me up and I gave birth very late at night. So it was very early in the morning and she wakes me up and she's like, excuse me, wake up. And I thought, okay, it must be time to nurse again or something happening. I don't know with the sutures or whatever it is. And she's like, do you like Matt Lauer? I thought to myself, do I like Matt Lauer? And this is before when he was still on the Today Show. So the question was not a loaded one <laughs> to have asked. And I said, yeah, I mean, yes, what? And I was kind of in a stupor and confused as to why she was asking about this. She goes, great, do you watch the Today Show a lot? And it was just one of those moments thinking, but she was so nice and her, her demeanor was so, um, comforting that I didn't challenge it. I was thinking, I don't want to be rude to somebody who's being so sweet right now. And I don't know what is going on. And she says, I want you to wake up. I want you to watch the Today Show. Just sit with me a second. And so for a minute, she started talking about the show and sat me up and kind of put this like device in my hand. I didn't know what it was. And I said, I go, well, yeah, this was great. Is What's happening? Why did you wake me up? And she says, I just want you to know in the most pleasant of way, I want you to know that you're bleeding very badly. But I want you to know that um, I'm concerned about a potential hemorrhage, but only you will be able to really feel it in the way that I need to be alerted. So it might feel like there's a sort of maybe an anvil that might feel like on your on your head and you'll have sort of a rush. And I just want you to be aware of that. I want you to be awake and talking to me and I'm getting ready to, to change shifts now and someone else is going to come in, but I want you to be awake and, and really telling me essentially, I need you to be a champion right now and you alone will know if there's something off for a second. And I said, okay, and she put this thing in my hand, this little sort of device, almost like a pager. And I had it in my hand and um, I waited and kind of said, okay. And my husband was sleeping in those little cramped couches that they put in the little room, right? And my mom, I knew was coming soon to talk to, to be in the hospital. And my, my baby was, you know, next to me in a little sort of bassinet area. And so I sat up and I remember watching the Today Show and just thinking, she says, I'm gonna feel something and only I will feel it, okay. And I was kind of going in and out. And then my mother, I remember walks in and she's sitting and I said, oh, hi mom, how are you? And she had a little latte. And I remember this latte so well for other reasons. So she had it in her hand, she sat right across from me. And I said to her, how are you? And she's, I'm good. And then I remember saying it again, how are you? And she said, you just asked me that. And then I felt like there was an elephant that sat on my head all of a sudden. I just felt like there was just a, I just couldn't, I wasn't coherent. And I thought there was a huge, like just someone had sat on my actual like temple and my scalp. And I thought, oh my God, what is that? And I remembered this nurse saying, you're going to feel it. And I just remember pushing the button. And I woke up being resuscitated and decoding. And my mother across from me, like coming in out of consciousness, my mother with her latte sitting there and the nurses trying to, I had obviously it had hemorrhaging and they had to do sorts of measures to remove the clotting and a nurse and a doctor's coming in. I just remember the silence though, and how this team of nurses, they were exchanging glances and no one was saying anything. And it was just sort of like a moment in this, this really, um, almost this, ro this robotic assembly line of talking about the blood loss and trying to put the, you know, the, the chest um, uh, mechanisms on and figuring out and watching the coding and 
seeing my husband who was across now awake and he was losing it. And I remember just saying, coming in and saying, get him out of here. I don't want him to see. Like in that moment, I was still thinking about, God, I don't want him to see this. I don't want, I don't know what's happening. And I kept thinking and looking at my mother who is with her latte like this, like mm -hmm, across from me and thinking, well, my mom, she's so calm. I must be okay. I'm not, I'm not dying. I must be okay. I'm coming in and out. I don't know what's going on. I feel some pressure. You know, there, I, there was a glove to somebody's elbow. Like it was just, I knew something was happening and I heard the codes and I saw it. And so, but my, and they, I remember being, you know, just whatever, a, a part where I was stable and um, still kind of holding on to this, this, this button. And my mother saying, she, you know, okay, you're, you're, you're going to be okay. And getting up for a second while it was stable, I said, okay, I must be okay. And I remember her getting up and just sort of casually grabbing her cell phone and calling my father to say, we're losing her and walking out and trying to be calm for me. And I remember thinking, oh my God, what's what happening? happening? And so I, and th thank I me, mean, thank God, obviously fine. I had to have several blood transfusions and um, and, it, and it was a, a factor of just, you know, the, when they put, give you the Pitocin, I think it was on the day before the, yes. to, to, you know, initiate the um, labor. To start your labor. It would not, my, my uterus would not contract in whatever way it needed to. I'm not a doctor. I can't explain yeah. what it was. I just remember. And, and so I, so that, that happened. And I remember the consequence of that and the aftermath of that and feeling like within 12 hours of becoming a mother, I watched my own mother trying to put on the face that I one day would put on for my own kids when they get injured to be like, you're fine. Oh yeah, no, you're gonna be okay. Making sure your expression on your face, Anishé, matches like what you want them to feel. Mm -hmm. And thinking about what it would be like for my husband to raise this child alone, wanting my son to have this mother and thinking about this nurse who just in that moment, just woke me up to say, hey, this is something that you're, you're gonna have to be a champion for this, I, I can't feel, I, by the time you notify, I don't want it to have been too late. And just thinking about that and reading your book, The Pain Gap, I thought about all the moments that we have to be our own champion and how sometimes the medical community can only go so far as to try and explain the things that your intuition and your body knows to be true. And I, I that, so that's my, that was my my son's birth story and, um, and he's healthy and I'm healthy and I, I had my baby girl and after, you know, what, 18 months later and um, so happy, but it, it factors into how I thought about, did I want more children? Could I go through the risk again? Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, my answer to that is no, because <laughs> it took my like six years for me to have like another, it was like a six year gap between my kids. Cause I was like, I'm done. Yeah. I'm going to, someone is going to kill me. Um, postpartum, oh no. <laughs> talk about trauma. Uh, we, we laugh, but that's, we, think of, we, we all have our birth stories and that's no, what's crazy do. about it. Oh yes. And you know why I always want to hear women's stories because it's crazy what women keep to themselves and don't even uh, share because yeah. first, you know, well, I talk about this a lot in the book in the book but a lot of times we know we're either going to be dismissed no one cares about it no one wants to hear it and mostly because we know we probably won't be believed uh but postpartum hemorrhage is a leading cause of uh women dying after labor even in america it almost happened to christy turlington i mean yeah. it could have happened to serena williams so it's not even an issue about uh wealth or education Mm -hmm. Which leads or, me or athleticism. Yes. <laughs> I'm no Serena. <laughs> no, but you know what? 
I mean, talk about athleticism, right? And she is one of the most uh, famous and most successful athletes in the world. And it is her job to know her body. And they right. still weren't right. listening to her. She's like, I am going to get clots. <laughs> She's like, and they, and she was right. They found, I think like three or four in her lungs. Um, wow. Which wow. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Serena Williams. Uh, and the nurse was telling her that her, her pain medication was making her delusional. Um, anyhow, she's lucky to be alive. Which leads me to my next uh, question, which is for so long before the pandemic, people were blaming race, right? As the driving factor between these insane, massive disparities between black maternal deaths and white maternal deaths. And I will reiterate this because it just blows my mind because we hear that black women are two to three uh, times more likely to die than their white counterparts. But that statistic I, that I feel like everybody should really scream from the rooftops is 243% more likely to die than their white counterparts, black mm. women are. And now we know, and there's now studies coming out that obviously in the pandemic has exposed to the world that it's not race, it's racism. And now there's studies saying that an educated black woman, a college educated black woman is five times more likely to die than a white woman with a high school degree hmm. giving birth in America. What does, what do you think when you hear that? Because I kind of feel like our, and I felt like the sense reading your book too, that our parents kind of tried to protect us from what it was going to be like to be a woman of color in the world, kind of with education. Like my dad always really pushed that, you know, mm -hmm. education, don't have an accent when you speak English. <laughs> mm -hmm. These things that were so important. And then you realize kind of that nothing will protect you. And I felt like even with healthcare that, oh, I can articulate, you know, I'm articulated. I can advocate for myself, but still I almost died uh, in childbirth. So what do you, as a strong, empowered, amazing, successful woman like you, obviously beyond educated, what does it say to you to hear that about black women in America? What do you think? I, it, it breaks my heart to think about that. It, it makes me feel misled into being, into sort of the lulled into a false sense of security about the country we're in and a country that heralds healthcare and um, distinguishes itself from so many other nations is, and, and, and being, you know, the sort of the joke of first world problems. You don't think of the issues here and they shouldn't be anywhere. I know you believe the same thing. These issues we're talking about should never exist for any woman giving birth or any experience. But the fact that it happens here, it sort of adds insult to injury because you think and you know you're not naive and you know that disparities exist, but the fact that you can't out-educate, out-earn, out-choose these factors is really difficult to reconcile. Um, and I, like you, my parents, you know, have always taught me and instilled in me a variety of values and also resilience because, you know, you have to almost expect, you can't walk around in the world believing that everything will, um, will work out precisely as you think planned for them to do so. You have to be really proactive and ensuring that what you want to happen can really happen. And that means sometimes having to, to be more vocal than you're comfortable being. Sometimes it means having a person come with you into a medical room and saying, this is a trusted companion who I need to also be my voice or to remind you to kind of turn to that person and sort of say, what am I not asking or what am I missing? You know. Um, having those conversations and just it, it forces us to remember that 
you really have to be your own champion. I mean, I joke around, like, I mean, I, I mean, I actually literally, I'm in my home studio and you know, one, I'll, I'll just show you one of the things I have in here. Sometimes I, um, I, I talk about wearing my own Jersey. Like I wear my own Jersey from time to time. Like you think I'm kidding. Like I, like this is my own Jersey and it has coats on the, on the back of a Minnesota Gophers Jersey. And I just, it, I wear it because not out of arrogance. I wear it to remind myself in those moments of insecurity or when I need a champion that I've got to wear my own Jersey. And that happens when you're talking about medical care. It happens talking about courtroom. It happens in the media. It happens in your daily life, your personal issues. Like if I don't, if I'm not willing to put it on, why would I expect somebody else to do so? And it's a pleasant surprise when they do. I'm, I'm, I love it and I welcome it. And it brings tears to my eyes when I have just in writing this book and reaching out to people, the unexpected champions that have really touched my heart and people of it's so vulnerable to, you know, to reach out during the book writing process or, Hey, do you, can, can you, you mind reading it? You know, and it's very vulnerable and humbling when somebody puts on your Jersey and, and they wear it. And so I, I remind myself so often about how you have to do that figuratively. And when I can't, you know, it's, it's obviously gold and maroon. It doesn't go with most of my outfits. So I have to figuratively put it on, you know, I got to figuratively put it on. It's my carry necklace from Sex in the City. It's my Jersey and you put it on. And that's where we have to be, even in the United States of America even in a courtroom, even in a medical office, even in a job interview, even in your kids' classrooms, when a teacher is messing with them, you gotta put on a jersey and you gotta be the coach, bring your whistle, and you gotta be their advocate and champion too. And so I, I just, I put that out there. You're like, Laura is crazy. And yes, I am, but I'm crazy about being a champion. Even no, for myself. <laughs> I am not thinking that at all. I'm actually thinking, what a good idea. And should I get it in my UVA school colors or should I get it yes, in hot pink? <laughs> I'm actually thinking what color I should get it in because yeah. you're right. I mean, you're like, hey, even if it doesn't match, you got to wear it. <laughs> wear it. I, but it's I so wear it. true if you're not on your, it is so true. And you know what? We're so good at being advocates for other people, right? Mm -hmm. For our spouses, for our children, we're so, for our parents, for whoever needs it, our friends. Right. You forget, you got to do it for yourself too right you have to do it i love that laura oh my goodness <laughs> well on that note first of all thank you so much and everybody everybody the book is out january 18th right yay just oh look at it yay it's so beautiful <laughs> it's so well written and thank honestly you. i i mean it, it didn't surprise me because you're so brilliant, but it's like, you just think of you as a lawyer. Like, I'm like, this is like a book by like, I don't know. <laughs> like you are in a gripping, powerful uh, storyteller. And, I, and then like, as you can see, I was literally, I'm yep. like lessons to remember and write down. So thank you so much for writing this book and for joining us on Spilling Chai. You are and so sweet. Thank you. I, I didn't have, I ran out of my chai, so I brought green tea. <laughs> Hey, well, that's great. That, that, that is great. As long as it's not coffee. I, neither one of, us needs coffee, neither yeah. one of us needs any more caffeine. <laughs> this is very true. <laughs> Thank awesome, you for Laura. all the love. I'm so Thank proud you of so you much. and the book. So Remember, it's called Pain Gap. I'm so proud of you and so great to meet you. And I mean, we've met before, obviously, but to meet you in um, at the sort of intersection of our shared experiences yes. was so unexpected and pleasant and wonderful. Totally. And I'm so glad you continue to uplift these stories of women and make us all less afraid or insecure about talking about the things 
we must share to one another. So thank you. Thank you. And thank you for sharing your story. Thanks so much, Laura. We have to get drinks once this like pandemic hell is over. (laughs) I feel like I can talk to you forever. Yes. Uh, I feel like you're an old friend. Thank you so much, Laura. Have a good one. I will speak to you soon. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye.